James chapter 1, and I'm just going to read maybe one or two verses, and we'll get right into the word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have allowed us to be here to hear your holy word. Some of us have been looking or maybe searching for some divine revelation. Thank you, Lord, that you just spoke to us, God. And we say that we pray that you would be mighty to save. Hear our prayers this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you notice, we're beginning a new series this morning. If you're new uh, here, we go through just books of the Bible and we just take it line by line and uh, just see what the Lord would have for us. We're beginning a new series in the study of this letter of James, a letter that is intensely practical, uh, the kind of practical help that the people of God need in everyday uh, lives. Uh, I have tagged this as the true religion that works. You will notice the word religion in there and the word before it, true. Uh, I, I have, I'm kind of over the idea of people saying, I don't need religion, I need relationship. And, and I say that because I've been guilty of saying that. Uh, but what you're going to find in the book of James is really a flow of thought processes from James that lets us know what true religion really looks like. Religion is not bad. In fact, if you look up the word religion and you look it up in the Webster Dictionary, you'll find that religion is just me devoting myself to a deity. Me giving myself up under the authority uh, or devoted to a deity. And so there are two types of religion, I could say. There's a false religion, one in which that Jesus attacks uh, head on a lot in uh, the Gospels, you see. And then there is what James would qualify for us in what we would see as a true religion. Now, what do we mean by this true religion that works? Now, when we are faced with the true religion of Christianity, the religion of Jesus Christ, it transforms the believer, and it moves us into a working salvation. It moves us into a body of believers who are practically living out their faith. This is what the book of James is all about. In fact, I could just close up shop now, I guess, and we can d dismiss this study because this is exactly what James is about. It is about how Christians ought to behave. Now, Barna Research just put out some research earlier this, this year. And it suggests that only 4% of Christians hold to a biblical worldview. <laughs> that's, that's incredibly terrifying, okay? That, 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 that means that only 4% of Christians believe in the divine authority of God's word. And, and what that means for the... 96, I didn't do good at math in school. The 96% of Christians is this, that the authority of God's word isn't enough. In fact, I will draw my worldview from secularism. I will draw worldview from, you know, my feelings or what I consider to be of truth. That's terrifying. In fact, that ought to be very alarming to us as a church. 
James is going to address all of us and give us this practical view of what it looks like to be a Christian and how you ought to be behaving. Now, this is going to be very challenging if I might just, uh, by way of introduction, in fact, this morning I'll just give us a lot of introductory work. This is going to be incredibly challenging for a lot of us, okay? And challenging in that he's going to address in just a few verses uh, later on this chapter uh, that some of y'all are spitting out of both ends of your mouth. You're building folks up, but you're also tearing them down. Now, if that makes you wince, you're in good company. Because I know that's a lot of us in this room this morning. We want to, we want to build people up and everybody, we, you know, we want, to, you want, we want folks to notice it too. But we also, with our same mouth, are going to tear folks down. In fact, later in this chapter, he's going to be pretty direct with us. And in fact, he's going to challenge us in, in, in how a lot of us are tempted to play favorites. How, how we're playing favorites maybe even in this church. He's even going to address uh, where you sit. Now, isn't that interesting? How non-traditional Refuge City Church is. We meet in a movie theater. Ooh. But we're very traditional people. I've got to sit in my seat that I've been sitting in for the past two years. And if somebody gets in my seat, I'll ask them to move. Well, James is actually going to tell you, you need to move. That's in James chapter 4. Maybe some of you ought to move around. You've been sitting with the, with the folks you've been sitting with, and maybe there's relationships to be had, but you can't have those relationships because you keep sitting in the same seat. And I know some of you are being like, well, you don't sit down. Well, okay, fine. I'm not judging. It's just an observation. In fact, this could have been uh, maybe tagged as the, the, the letter of James, the challenging book to all of us. So James is going to be very challenging. You see, whatever faith doesn't issue in love, however our orthodox, our historical orthodox is in our theology, if it's not issued in love, then we have, uh, we, we have a really kind of uh, dangerous type faith. And there's going to be at least 108 verses that are going to address how we disregard how we're living out our faith. 108 verses. In fact, there's going to be uh, at least what we would call them um, maybe of a sort of imperatives or, or commands or something of that nature. And listen to what he's going to say just in verse 5. I'll just give you a few examples. If any of you lack wisdom, what do you got to do? At God. Ask God. He's, he's, he's imploring you to do something. Another implorative statement or imperative statement. Verse 19, my dear brothers, take note of this. Verse 19, later he says, uh, I want you to listen up. Verse 26, paraphrase of Matthew's version, I want you to shut up. Uh, verse 1 of, of actually chapter 2, not chapter 4, don't show favoritism. And he goes on to like the host of them, about 60, and you could go count them yourselves later on, but there's going to be about 60 imperatives here where he's telling you, listen, this is actually how we are to behave as Christians. Something that we ought to recognize in all of this that we say is that, and this is a phrase that was kind of annoying back in 2020 during the corona uh, hysteria. We're all, you remember this statement? We're all in this together. No, we weren't, honey. 
No, we weren't. Some of y'all may be in, a, in the dip of hysteria, but I wasn't. I wasn't in it with you. So we need to take back this term and this word and this phrase of we're all in this together. In fact, we'll all find that we all are in this together. In fact, it's going to be pretty uh, funny because in verse 32, he's going to say, we all stumble. Now, that doesn't sound very encouraging on one end of the spectrum. But on the other end of the spectrum, it sounds really good. Because I ain't the only fool that stumbles. He's going to call all y'all out in your mess and say, we all stumble. In fact, we're a band of stumblers. We're in a company of people in this room right now who have a degree, a certified degree and a specially special degree certificate, whatever you want to call on stumbling. Now, when I say we're all in this together, that ought to make us feel better, doesn't it? Because you're not the only person in this room who stumbles, who falls, who sins. We're all in this together. In fact, this is going to display our doctrine uh, for all to see. And, and for that matter, what it's going to challenge us in, in, in is like maybe some of you go to the gym, but you don't work out. You just go. Maybe I t stepped on somebody's toes right there. You just go and you observe and you're like, well, maybe that machine can really um, help me. And, and you never do get on the machine and work out. And so what James is going to tell you is stop looking at the machine, thinking that looking at a machine is going to give you the biceps that you've been dreaming of. Get on the machine, grab the dumbbells and get to work. Because that's how life is transformed through the pain through the growth. In fact, we'll get into that in just a moment. There's a fly here that's about to get the Holy Spirit in just a moment. Let's look at James for a second. I don't know if that's true. Uh, let's, um, <laughs> let's look at James real quick. He, he introduces himself. So I want to look at the writer here. I don't want to take too much time on this, but I can't, we can't overlook this. He goes and he introduces himself. He's like, James, we can safely assume that this is the half-brother of Jesus. Look at what he says um, well, why doesn't he, or look at what is not said. Why doesn't he say that he is the brother of Jesus? Well, I think the obvious observation is that everybody knew who James was. If James called you from Jerusalem, they didn't have phones then. But if James called you and was like, this is James, then you knew who it was. It's kind of the same thing as if a guy named Elon calls you, you know who that is. And you pray and that he's giving you somebody, like if somebody with that name recognition, and so James is like, look, I'm James, you know me. I'm a servant of the most high God, our Lord Jesus. Now that, that is interesting that he doesn't say that I'm, I'm James, the half-brother of Jesus. Because James's identity is not in his birth relationship through his half-brother of Jesus. James recognized and was under what Paul would say when he met Christ in his resurrection, when Jesus or when James met Jesus and Jesus transformed his life, his identity was, was the identity that all believers have. Not that I'm a half brother of Jesus, but I am a servant of the Lord Jesus. It wasn't that his birth of his mother brought James together with Jesus it was that Jesus' saving grace brought James to Jesus Christ. This is why James can say, this is James, the servant 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can James say such a thing? I mean, you got to think back in John chapter 7, where, where his, his, his family, in Mark chapter 5, where his family, James included in this batch of people. What, 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 do, they want? what do they want James? What do they want Jesus? They're like, Jesus, you got to stop all this mess. You look crazy. Like they were ready to tie Jesus up and like, you know, cast him out in, in the loony bin. What happened to James from James being a denier of Jesus as the Messiah? I'll tell you what happened to James. First Corinthians chapter 15 happened to James. And you could flip over there. And this is Paul's uh, sort of uh, a dialogue on the resurrection. In the beginning of chapter 15 of First Corinthians, Paul says Jesus met someone. Y'all know who that someone was? It was James, the resurrected half-brother of Jesus. The Lord Jesus met James, and it dramatically changed his life. And it changed his life to where you find in Acts chapter 15, a historical account of the, of the birth of the church. Who's in the middle of the council of the church leadership? James is. How can James go from someone who used to deny Jesus in his deity to now suddenly say, my name is James, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's not just, you know, throwing out some, you know, this is the Lord Jesus. You got to understand the word Lord here. That when the Greek, when the Old Testament was translated into the Greek, the word that they would not speak, Yahweh, what word did they use? Lord. And so now when you go through all of the New Testament and you see Jesus, you see the word, what? Lord. Yahweh. That Jesus is God. James is making quite an assertion on the identity of who Jesus is. And he's not just saying, well, James, is, you know, Jesus is just my half-brother. No, he is Jesus. He is Yeshua. He is my Savior. And he, Jesus, is God. So he's not just tossing out some idea about who he thinks Jesus is. No, he is like, listen, I saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ appear before me. I saw his wombs. I saw his hands. I saw him alive. He's no longer dead. And therefore must I say that he is my God. And we can, we can later look at the life of James in which we will later on. Well, maybe I'll just do it now. In fact, we'll, we'll see how... how um, how challenged James was on this deity of Jesus at the end of his life when, when the religious establishment, when I should say the false religious establishment, they take James upon the top of a roof and they tell him what? Recant the name of Jesus. And James says, I cannot recount his name because he is Lord. Y'all know what they do to the half-brother of Jesus. They 
toss him off the roof. He is still alive, lying on the ground. They began to pelt him with rocks. How can anybody in their right mind do such a thing unless they have met the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ? James is the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. James says, I used to deny him. I thought my brother was just crazy and needed some strong medication. But I saw him resurrected. And he is my God. He is my Lord. And therefore, I am his servant. There is not another title that ought to be associated with the Christian believer other than my name is Matthew. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may have an occupation, but your occupation does not define you. You may be a teacher, but you are a teacher who serves the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be a manufacturer worker, but you're a manufacturer worker who is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, isn't it interesting? This is just by way of passing how the service industry in these United States of America have gone down the toilet. You know why? And this, maybe this is just speculation. You know why that's true? Because nobody wants to be the servant. Oh, I'm, I'm better than a servant. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a director. I'm a manager. I'm a supervisor. I am, you know, whatever you think you are, as if to say that someone who is a servant is beneath you. And we ought, what we ought to be saying is, my name is Matthew. I don't care what my occupation is, but that's not what defines me. What defines me is this. I have met the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore I have no other objective other than to be the servant of the King Jesus. That's our introduction of who James is. Now let's talk about who his readers are. He says this, which is a kind of interesting thing. Well, there are the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, that's what James says here. They're the 12 tribes scattered among the nation. Now, we have to ask ourselves the question is, well, is this distinctly a letter that is just for the Jews? I don't, I don't think it is a letter just for the Jewish church. In fact, I would suggest this is a letter to the, the universal church that goes beyond Jerusalem but we need to think about this. And so how I think about this is also how Peter, and you flip over just a few pages uh, past chapter 5 of James, you get into 1 Peter. And 1 Peter also has a beginning with a similar introduction. And Peter designates himself as an apostle of Jesus, one who has been set apart and sent by Jesus. And Peter says, I'm writing to God's elect. And who are they? Were they the strangers in the world? They're the believers that have been dispersed. They're the folks that have been sent out of Jerusalem and gone out through all Judea into the four corners of 
the world. In fact, James, if you, you go back to James, he says that these people were the scattered among the nations. And you'll notice in the next chapter, James addresses the believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you look at this, this is all people who have been scattered throughout the world who are what? Believers in Christ our Lord Jesus and you may say, well, are we scattered? Yeah, you better believe we've been scattered. And we are also under the same understanding of the Jewish people that they would be reunited in their homeland, that we too will be reunited in our homeland and the new earth with Christ our Lord. Now, all of that is just by way of introduction. Who is James? James says, I'm, I, I was once a denier of this, this half-brother of mine, but now I am a faithful servant of my God, of my Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to give us just an introduction into a little bit of practical uh, information if we can. And I'll just go through this uh, quite quickly. He's identified himself and now he says, listen, this is how true religion works. This is how Christians ought to behave. This is how true religion works. Look what he says here. And don't miss this. And we'll just go through this quickly. We'll look at it in more depth next week. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. So here's what, here's what James is doing. That the practical life of a Christian is going to be met with trials. It's <laughs> the only way this does not occur. Okay, are you ready for this? Is if you're dead. You will not experience another trial when you are met with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really fantastic news. But unfortunately, he doesn't say just by chance if you are. No, he's like giving us like this unfortunate news, by the way. Right? When you look at that, like, isn't that unfortunate? Like, man, like, like why couldn't have he said, like, whenever you are experiencing your best life now because it's on its way? Because, I mean, that's what I would like. But he says, no, this is going to be the mark of a believer. This is going to be a mark of a Christian faithful servant of Jesus Christ. That when, consider it joy, when you face trials of many kinds. Of many kinds. Just when you thought that one trial was over. Here come another trial. Just when you thought... You had conquered life. Life says, hold my beer. And it punches you right back in the face. Here's another trial. It's like the Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey of, of trial. You get a trial. You get a trial. You get a trial. 
And it doesn't stop. How can we consider it joy? That is such an interesting phrase that we are to consider it joy. We consider it pure joy that when we face many trials of any kinds, because we know, that's what the text says, because we know what? That it produces faith inside of us. In other words, we can have joy when we are met, slapped in the face, punched in the gut with a trial because we know the outcome of the trial. The outcome of the trial is that it is going to make me look more like Christ than I did before. Now, I don't know why you go through so many trials. I don't know why I go through the types of trials that I have been through. But here's what I know outside of those trials. That God was pressing me. God was making me. God was pulling things out of me that did not belong inside of me. And he was what we call in the Christian life, sanctifying me more into his image. And so if I can look more like Christ, then when I'm going to be punched in the gut again, then I can have joy. Only the believer in Christ can say that. Because if you're not a believer in Christ, there's no purpose in your trial. But for the believer, James says, you count it joy. Because when you are faced with trials, we know that this trial is going to make us, strengthen us, make us look more like Christ. Isn't that the way of life, though, as it seems? That how you get anything in life is through what? Pain. Trials. You want the body of your life. Well, you know, what society would tell you is just, well, you just do these three steps right here. And all of those three steps that society is going to tell you do not include pain. But if you want to build the muscle in your body... You've got to do what? This is science, y'all. You tear it up. You break it apart. Now, I could take off this jacket right now and expose my massive biceps, but my wife forbids it. And so the reason why we have muscles in our body and the reason why these are not very large, all right, if I wanted them to become like someone, say, of a bodybuilder, then what do I've got to do? I've got to tear these muscles up. I've got to make it go through the process of pain. James is saying here, you want to look more like Christ? Go through a life of pain. Go through trials. And from that, as the believer, when I step into an eternal glory with Christ our Savior, I will be able to have a joy that is unspeakable. How can I have joy in my trial? Because I know the outcome of it. Romans 8 would tell us that all things would work out to our good for those who love Christ. And that's, that's saying, first of all, it's saying that all things that are including those trials that James is talking about. And that God would take those trials and work them out for our benefit. And it may seem like there is no absolute way. God can make something good out of this. 
I would just press you. And let me tell you something. I'm not pressing you because I haven't been there myself. All right, I've, I've been in those moments, honey, where I have looked at situations in my own life and I have said, I do not see how God can do anything good of this. And it wasn't for years after being removed from that till I can say, I don't know how God did it, but he made a way. I don't know how God did it, but he pulled me through. I don't know how, how I made it through this trial or that trial, but he made something good out of it. And you may not even see that on this side of eternity. But I promise you one day you'll look back in eternity and you'll see from a, a, a more uh, higher view of things, you'll see, man, God was working in my situations. James says, listen, I'm going to start out a practical way of living your life. All right. And let's deal with this idea that you are going to be met with trials. Now, one last thought on this. That if a church, and I think this is incredible, and I think this is, you know, just amazing that, you know, James can say this. And he's talking to a church, and he's telling them, listen, if in trial you have joy, what kind of witness does that show to the people around you? And I, and I would say that that's my prayer for us as a church that when we're, go because here's why, we are in a society of do-goodism where nobody wants to show their mess. Where nobody wants to show like, let me tell you how terrible my life is. <laughs> nobody wants to do that. But what if there was a church that said, listen, but... My life has been met with trials of temptations, of trauma. But look, I have joy. And I have joy because I know the outcome of this. What kind of statement does that make to a society that wants to hide their failures, that wants to hide their trauma, that wants to hide any kind of ounce of my life is in shambles? And why is that? Because people don't want nobody to believe that your life is in shambles. We've got to live the societal do-goodism of the day. My life is perfect. In fact, my life is better than you. I'll prove it. I've got a better house than you. My spouse is better than yours. My kids don't cuss me out like yours do. And you can just go on to the list. And you want to make it seem like you've got this Instagram picture-perfect life. In reality, it's awful. But then the believer steps in and says, I am going through trials. I am going through a life of trauma, but I can have joy because I know that whatever God is putting me through right now, I'll count it joy because I know the outcome. That it's going to produce a faith in me that wasn't in me during that trial. That it'll grow my faith and strengthen my faith in him and sanctify me more into the image of Christ, our Lord. I don't know if you know the Apostles' Creed. 
And maybe we ought to start saying that often in this church so that we won't be that non-traditional church that I was talking about earlier. But it begins with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. We don't really believe in God the Father. And this is true for the most part until everything around us collapses. And when everything around you collapses, you start knowing God in a more intimate way as my Father. And you start leaning in Him as your Father. And you start trusting in Him as your Father. Maybe it's going to take a trial for you to finally come to believe that God is not just some cosmic deity out there trying to make my life miserable. But instead, God is a loving father who loves me, who cares for me, and knows that in this trial, he is crafting me into something more than what I am today. I have a strong sense and desire and prayer that God do something in the life of this church along those lines. And it's scary, but we're here for it. Let's pray.